It's an exciting time to be in Unamagi, Cape Breton. We're having an economic renaissance. Never has there been a time that's been this good. The fact that companies are coming here tells me we've got something that they need. Throughout this series, we'll show you why there's never been a better time to invest in Cape Breton. My advice is do it sooner than uh, later. Hi, I'm Michelle Sampson, and I'll be guiding you through this journey. Why me? Well, I'm a 10th generation settler, born and raised in a small Acadian community in Richmond County. But more than that, I believe in this economic renaissance because I'm part of it. I was one of those young people who left, but I recently found my way back home and started a podcast production company. As the host of this podcast, I'll combine my insider slash outsider perspective, economic development background, and storytelling skills to convince you that this really is an exciting time for my island. This podcast is an initiative of the Cape Breton Partnership, Unamagi Cape Breton's private sector-led economic development organization. This episode is sponsored by the Regional Entrepreneurship Acceleration Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT REAP. It is a dynamic global initiative that engages with communities around the world to strengthen their innovation and entrepreneurship ecosystems and transform their economies. MIT REAP translates leading research from MIT expert faculty into practical frameworks, convenes key stakeholders who are focused on innovation and entrepreneurship, and educates regional leaders through team-based interaction to achieve economic and social progress. To learn more about our programs, visit reap.mit.edu. Cape Breton has a long history of innovation. Our most famous early innovator was telephone inventor Alexander Graham Bell, whose experiments on the shores of the Bedore Lakes resulted in scores of inventions and records for Canada's first powered flight and the world's fastest watercraft. Today, there are over 50 tech companies on this island of 140,000 people. Many are in the bustling urban area around Sydney, but a surprising number are not. Others live in the cloud, able to be located anywhere, but the founders are here because there's more to life than making bucket loads of cash. In this inaugural episode of Invest in Cape Breton, we explore the island's innovation ecosystem with the help of three leaders in the medtech, cleantech, and IT sectors who prove that innovation is thriving on this island. We start with Chad Monroe, the CEO of Halifax Biomedical. His medical diagnostics business, which provides advanced measurements to researchers and physicians, was once located in Halifax. But for the past 15 years, it's been in Mabu, a rural community of about 1,200 people. Yeah, I was surprised too. My first guess was that he grew up in Mabu, but I was wrong. He grew up on the Nova Scotia mainland near New Glasgow. So there were other factors at play. Well, it was between several locations at the time. It was uh, Mulholland Bay was one uh, very strong option. And we looked closely at Bedeck, rented, you know, Airbnbs and looked for places to rent around Bedeck. And then my wife, when we were turning back to Halifax, she said, oh, I had to take you over to this spot. And so we went over to West Mabu and we're like, wow, this is really a lovely spot. Let's hang around here for a few days. And so we rent a B&B, uh, Isaac Smith's farm. And then of course, Isaac asked us what we were doing there. And we told him we were thinking about setting up a company and we needed some places to rent and a place to live. And, and, uh, within I think 24 hours, we had many people 
um, help us out, find a place to rent, find a place to have as an office. That was the start. The people were so lovely. And then of course we met with many different people to get advice. And some of those people were adamant that Baba was the place that we should go. And, and, um, yeah, I agree with them. So, so that's where we went. We could be anywhere. We chose Malibu because that's where we want to be. It's one of the most fulfilling things in life. If you can make that decision and innovation-based businesses now, you can make the decision. I love that story. It is just so classic Cape Breton. But from a business perspective, in just about every industry, availability of talent is a major issue. Many companies will move to major urban centers like Halifax to find talent. So I wondered if Chad was able to find the people that he needed three and a half hours away. From my perspective, a work location is just like a product. And the employee is really buying that product right there. They're accepting that as a place to live, work. So within that group of employees for any role, whether it's the CEO or the head of sales or a a talented R&D engineer, there's a a sub-market that wants that product that would love to live in Mabu. There's many people working in New York that would love to live in Mabu and work in Mabu instead. And when we started 20 years ago, that was really uncommon. You really couldn't do your New York job in Mabu. We decided that we didn't care. We were going to do that anyways. But, uh, you know, that had challenges. Today, there really aren't any challenges. You can do your New York job, whatever it is, with a combination of in-person and, and remote working, but you can do it from Abu. I hear a lot about the talent issue, but I, I personally don't, uh, I just don't see that as an issue. If you pay well, people come to work for you. If you do something that's interesting, meaningful, people will come to work for you. And the population of the world's not getting smaller. So I think there's more and more talent available. And I, I think Mabu is one of the nicest places you could possibly live and raise a family. So why wouldn't you want to do what you do professionally there? Roughly, how many of your people have relocated to come and work for you and how many are local? We're really small right now, so I should say that. But at one point, we were 23, and most of those staff were from countries outside of Canada. But we had a few Cape Bretoners return home. We had a few people that started with us when they were young out of, out of university, so never really left. We were kind of the uh, United Nations of rural Nova Scotia for a while. We had a lot of different diverse talent from all over the world. And, um, and they were very productive. Are you finding that there are any downsides to being in a small community? I mean, at the start, there's lots of downsides, but most of those challenges um, in the last 20 years have really melted away. Things are just so much easier to do uh, remotely. You know, server costs have dramatically decreased and just the advent of cloud computing and Zoom. And I mean, we have Starlink now, we have fiber going by our front door. All the barriers that used to exist 20 years ago have really been greatly reduced. And I think the playing field is greatly flattened for companies all over the world. And that includes in rural Cape Breton. There are no excuses. You can do anything from anywhere. You just have to be the best in the world at it. Darren Gallup is another local entrepreneur who's aiming to be the best at what he does. He is a serial entrepreneur who started with three businesses in the music industry. One of them, Mercado Digital Solutions, which provided a back-end management system for music festivals and other events, 
was acquired by a Pittsburgh-based company in 2018. Darren opted for that kind of exit after it became clear that there was going to be consolidation in event technology. Festivals went from, you know, going to the box office, buying a ticket and getting a wristband and going to the festival and all this to all of a sudden, like everybody's buying their tickets online. And then every festival has a mobile app. So you have a mobile engaging experience. And then, you know, you're, you have some sort of streaming component where there's, you know, there's all this video activity and, and live sort of a constant promotion while the festival is going on after the festival and everything. And then you have these logistical components that were happening. So what does the festival actually want in the end? They don't want to have six or seven vendors that they have to wrestle with to try to figure out all these integrations and everything's messing up and things are breaking. So then it's like, okay, well, we're either a part and we get acquired or we're a leader. And we drive the growth and innovation. We partner with the right investors, essentially leading the rollout, right? We were back end. We were the expense center in back end logistics management versus the ticketing provider and the mobile provider. And some of these more forefronting events, we wouldn't have had to build out and, and penetrate into the market to get our revenue stronger in the ecosystem. I didn't have a relationship with venture capital firms and private equity firms. I didn't know how this financial market world, I just came from like the music industry into this. So it just seemed like, it just seemed like there were other customer companies that were more poised and we were strategically relying on those companies. So I saw it like this, okay, we're not going to lead the role. How do I get a profitable exit? That was the strategy. While growing Mercado, Darren and his business partner came across a problem. The big festivals require their vendors to meet minimum standards for cybersecurity. Mercado invested a lot of time and money to rise to those standards and realized that other small and medium-sized companies who needed enterprise-class security might not be able or willing to build it themselves. Thus, his next business, Carbide, was born. He saw big potential and understood early that he needed knowledge, money, and relationships to grow it. When I started Carbide, which was originally started as Securacy, we, what I wanted to do was like just fast track sort of upskilling around like what's going on in the world and how venture capital works more and how, you know, larger corporate markets outside of music industry work. I did not have real relationships in the cybersecurity industry. I had nothing really to go with in Bencap. So I, I applied to a bunch of accelerators, Y Combinator. 500 startups, uh, tech stars, Creative Destruction Lab in Toronto. We applied to a local regional one in the, that was taking place out of New Brunswick. We got into all of them, but we didn't find out at the same time. So we, we got into the local one first. So we started that one. And then like a month into that, we got into Creative Destruction Lab, which was in Toronto. And we're like, okay, well, that's not going to be better for us because we already know a lot of people in Atlantic Canada, that's Hugh Mercado. And, you know, like there's going to be heavier swingers in this Toronto one. So so then we were doing two, and then we got into Techstars. We went, we did Techstars in Boston in, in 2018. And yeah, like those were very fast paced, exposed businesses to learning how to pitch, learning how to raise capital, learning how to run a capital raising process, learning more about, you know, acquisition strategy and, and all these things and recruiting and like how to, how to scale a business. The Boston ecosystem is one of the top three, you know, venture capital ecosystems in North America, right? So. Uh, it was a great opportunity, met a lot of folks, built out our network substantially. Uh, and then, you know, now I have that alumni relationship where 
you can basically use the Techstar network to kind of roll into just about any city in, in North America and get warm intros and, you know, leverage the alumni network. Were you ever tempted to move Carbide to Boston or Toronto or wherever? We definitely considered opening opening an office in Boston. That was something we we considered. Before the pandemic, it was a thing we were talking about. It wasn't to move the company to Boston. It was to have an office in Boston. The idea of a remote company made no sense to me at that time. Boston's going to be more expensive than hiring the same talent in, in Cape Breton or anywhere in Canada, even just on the dollar value, right? So, so like the cost would be greater, but the talent pool there, right? When you're in an economy where there's hundreds of startups and there has been hundreds of startups for the last 10 years, and there's you know, acquisitions and mergers and there's all this ecosystem going on. There's people that have skill sets that we don't have. We can build skills, but when you're trying to build a business really quickly and scale really quickly, and you're trying to do the venture capital sort of treadmill of 100% plus growth year over year, it's not a business that that leans itself well to like find people and build them and grow them, right? Like that works when you're building a business 20, 25, 30% year over year, building that business locally, like that works in that environment. The product case is a phenomenal example of that. Like there's over 400 employees that work over there and they've come up with really great ways to find the right people, put them in the right spot and then nurture them into being exceptional. So that was a thought. I mean, there was also the like, what's the best thing for the business? And quite frankly, I would have said like the best thing for the business is for me to move to Silicon Valley. If my life goal was like, you know, screw me, screw what I want to do. Like, let's just do what's the best thing for making the most amount of money humanly possible, the quickest possible, I think it would have been to Silicon Valley because it's the largest concentration of startups, it's the largest concentration of NCAP. And the, the, the grandeur of the way people think there compared to where they think anywhere else I've ever been, it's just, just, just it's awe-inspiring. But I guess a fundamental thing when you're starting a business is like, why are you starting the business? What are you doing? What do you want for you? And what I, I wanted to live here and I wanted to do something that had impacts here. And, you know, I didn't necessarily want to go build a billion dollar business that becomes, you know, an IPO business. I'm happy to build the business that grows to, you know, five, six, seven, eight million dollars in revenue, 70 or 80 employees and get a really, you know, really good exit that hopefully gives me money for myself, but also gives me the opportunity to help other entrepreneurs and, and sort of spawn a bit more of an ecosystem here. Right. What keeps you in Cape Breton? I just like it here. Most of the people on the planet that are important to me are here. I find it really fascinating. I'm hanging around a lot of the Latin American community here in CBRM. These people are leaving their homes and coming to here and, you know, looking to start a new life. And, you know, depending on where they're coming from, there's all kinds of reasons. It could be safety. It could be financial security. It could be both. Like we do have a high degree of safety and we do have a lot of you know, programs and help for people who need help, I think. And we're in a good market, I think, to build a business or, you know, even to work now, especially post-pandemic now that there's so much remote working opportunity. There's a lot of things that I love about Cape Breton. And ultimately, it's it's the people first. Like, I don't think about business like, a lot of people think about a business very transactional. Like, okay, well, where's the best place for me to go to build this business? All right, I'm going there, right? That's, and I respect that. That's not how I've ever thought of it. Like, I look at the business like, how do I build a business that's going to give me what I want in my life versus like, what do I have to compromise in my life to make the greatest business? I'm happy doing it from here. And, you know, COVID has been a gift for me, quite frankly, on a few levels. I'll mention a couple of them that I think are really good for people here. The first one is 
we ended up just hiring people remotely. We were able to always go through this process of, well, we'll hire Cape Breton first, Nova Scotia second, Atlantic Canada third. And then, you know, and then when we can't find what we need, we'll, we'll think the rest of Canada, right? Um, and even the States, right? So, you know, like we had our VP of, of customer success used to be the VP of support for the, for Robert Harjavik and the Harjavik group, but at Toronto. And, you know, we have probably six or seven other people in Toronto. Um, we have our VP of sales and marketing is in Calgary. The other piece is it forced venture capital companies to write checks to people they haven't met or that are not close to them. I mean, I have an investor on my cap table that has, that has given us over $2 million that I've never met in person. What that opens up for people here is it means that there are a, a whole bunch of venture capital firms out there that are not in Cape Breton, that are not in Nova Scotia, that are quite frankly not even in Canada, that would invest in the right company and the right founder and the right vision. But then you have like th- groups like the Cape Breton Capital Group, which is a small early stage venture cap uh, group of, of local, mostly former or current operators or high net worth individuals that have all pulled money together to create a fund. And, you know, they've already written a few checks in the market. They're a fairly new fund. Um, you know, they have budget to write more checks. Really, there's never been a time where it, there's been more opportunity for attracting money and investment in your company in Cape Breton. Never since I've been alive has there been a time that's been this good for companies. Venture capital is becoming easier to find in Cape Breton. But that wasn't always the case. In 2021, the Cape Breton Strait region participated in MIT's Regional Entrepreneurship Acceleration Program as part of a provincial effort to better understand and drive Nova Scotia's innovation capacity. They identified barriers to innovation, which included a low per capita deployment of venture capital, about half the national average. Chad, who we met earlier, was on the team. And based on the program's findings and his mentorship experience, he sees the gap as less of a challenge and more of a blind spot that can be corrected with education. Well, I think one main blind spot is just how venture capital works and how funds work and understanding the perspective of the venture capitalists. You know, educating yourself on that process is, is important. So some entrepreneurs that I mentor, they'll, they'll say, well, people have come to me and wanted to invest in my company and, and I turn them down. Uh, because I'm not ready yet. They feel like they need to have the product fully vetted and approve a concept that's really strong. And, and, um, for certain, you know, software businesses that might be prudent, but this entrepreneur was actually in the health tech space. And I said, uh, venture capital is to support experimentation on the business model. So that entrepreneur's barrier was themselves. They didn't think they, they didn't want to go down that route and that, that, you know, venture capital is, is just going to ruin my company. And it's true. You have to pick the right investors. You have to be very careful and, and bring in people who are aligned with your mission, but you, you can't do it alone. Most teams in Atlanta, Canada are not complete teams. So you might have an accountant as your CFO, but that, that accountant has never taken a company public before, or never done a licensing deal or you may not have a strong IP strategy. It doesn't mean that the opportunities aren't really strong. And it doesn't mean that the, that the entrepreneurs don't have a really amazing opportunity. So in order to support those entrepreneurs, a decision was made to design a made in Atlantic Canada venture capital fund called Rising Tide. If enough support is pledged, Rising Tide will offer more than just money. It will help lift local startups to investment readiness over the course of three phases. 
the first phase is supportive capital to help the company get cleaned up for more formal processes. So things like shred loans or IP-based lending to try to get the companies ready to also do diligence on the company to see if they're working in something that warrants a, a large investment. And if they do, then you go into the second phase of the fund, which is filling those talent gaps to understand how to bring the company forward and, and write much larger venture capital checks. So not a $2 million check, not a $10 million check, but get the company ready for a $30 million growth stage investment. And you know, what do you need to get them to that point? And we have many um, sectors in Cape Breton that would fall into that category of being able to leverage and use a $30 million growth round. Things like food security and the bioreactors that are going on at the Reassurance Center. You know, us on the medtech side, there's other uh, medtech software in, on the island. And then all these emerging technology areas like green hydrogen and the taking advantage of our, some of our natural assets, but through innovations, you know, solving some of these, uh, these, uh, innovation problems related to offshore wind and so on. The opportunities exist here, but we need to actually create a structure, not just a venture capital fund. Like we can't take someone from Toronto and plop them in to Sydney and give them hundred million dollars and say, make investments because they can't apply that same model to, to Gay Breton. So we came up with a very regional specific model that would you know, support, identify, clean up, build, build gaps, and then fund. It's kind of a unique model that we, we would look to pilot and, and see if it works. And it might not. That's the whole point of innovating. Earlier, Chad mentioned that Unamagi Cape Breton's economy was home to emerging sectors and technologies that combine innovation with the island's natural assets. Much of that innovation is happening at the Vershuren Center for Sustainability in Energy and the Environment, an independent clean technology development and deployment facility with a mission to help Cape Breton and Canada transition to a low-carbon circular economy. To learn more about their work, I talked to President and CEO Beth Mason. From the beginning, its vision was clear. When it was established, there was a focus on remediation of, of all of the old industries, but those are pretty much gone. And so the idea of the Vishuran Center from the beginning was to say, where do we need to be in the 21st century? What do we need to build that is going to create jobs and, and bring innovation here and put us at the cutting edge of the global economy? So what, what are the global problems that also exist here in our own little microcosm? Um, so food security, which relates to food production and, and process and climate change. So whether that's mitigation through projects we do externally or whether that's with large corporates on pulling technology into GHG reduction. So those are the world's biggest problems and there are biggest problems. You may be slightly biased, but how do you think the Vershuren Center is doing in that mission? Where are we at on that spectrum of taking it from those dead industries to uh, being on the cutting edge? Well, yeah, I probably am biased, but I mean, as you know, we draw companies from across Canada and North America. So I would say the fact that companies are coming here tells me we've got something that they need. Um, and that's our business model. And, and because of that, I think we, along with all the partners we work with in, in our ecosystem and in the national ecosystem are, are doing reasonably well. Um, could we do better nationally? Absolutely. We could. We're behind on our on our national targets for GHG reduction. 
Um, and one of the gaps I see is just this, what we do. Scaling up companies is very capital intensive. It's not the same as the IT sector. And so we need to have more visual centers that support scale up and the capital intensive technologies that are going to change the world. So how exactly is the Vishuran Center helping these companies scale up? It's really a deployment center, if you wanted to put a title on it. It's a safe space with large capital assets, so infrastructure, for companies to come grow at the scale they need to be with their clean technologies to be able to then go and deploy with an industry partner. There are very few places in Canada when you, let's say, you, you, you innovated in a university and exit that you can actually go on and continue that growth without requiring an, an awful lot of private investment. So what we do is we build common platforms, i.e. big equipment, so clients can come in, go through that scale-up process and exit the other end, uh, likely connected to a partner in manufacturing that, that we also work with. It's very hard for them to innovate it doesn't match their return on investment criteria of, you know, we need a return today or in a year. It costs a lot of money to scale technologies. And so basically we're like a filter for those large companies. Are they advising in any way or are they just sort of tipping you off to, this is what we're looking for. If something walks through, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So we engage with large companies in a number of ways. One is to be in touch with what they need. Um, and the other is in mapping their path to net zero. And, and that pathway is, is not just large GHG reduction from energy, it's also supply chain. So we're cognizant of what they need. A lot of large manufacturers need the same things, and um, it's very hard for them to find that. So we act as that intermediary bridge between what technologies are there, what are the best technologies, how do we get them there fast enough, and then connect them with a large offtake partner. Okay. And are they within the Atlantic region? Are they across Canada? Are they around the world? It's interesting. So we have our local partners within, within Nova Scotia, and then a lot are multinationals. And typically when clients come in, potentially on the biomanufacturing side, they've already made some connections with a, a large corporate. So a, a lot are multinationals. The Assurance Center's flagship program is Ascend Bio which specializes in helping industrial biotech and agritech companies scale up. SendBio is a partnership between the Vassurance Center and Invest Nova Scotia. And we pull together potential investment dollars, um, early stage investment, non-dilutive investment, uh, HQP funding, and the technical platform. So working together, we can bring more of the needs of each one of those companies as they grow than singularly. And I think that and the fact of the assets that we've built and also the fact that when companies scale, they keep their IP. Um, it, it's hard to find a place where you can grow your business um, and, and the technology without losing some of it. Uh, we don't take early, early startup. We take, we call tech readiness level four to five. So what Ascend Bio offers it's the speed of development is so much more when you've got that supportive ecosystem around you, much faster than trying to slug it out alone and bootstrap. And then access to capital assets to get you to a stage where now you're more investable and then you can attract funds to deploy either here in Nova Scotia or across Canada. It was really only three and a half years ago that we, that we became independent 
and better able to deploy this business model. And if you look at the companies that are going through, uh, they're now at Series A, which means that their you know, next move is institutional investment. And they're already partnered with people in the Nova Scotia ecosystem to build that first deployment. So yeah, we're seeing the, those deployments right now from three years ago. And, and in the middle of that, we had COVID and, and all those other challenges. So yeah, it, it's, uh, it's really great to see those companies having reached those milestones. Are you able to speak to a specific example and, you know, sort of what they looked like when they came in and what they look like now? Alta Biota has received quite a lot of press and they have a biographene product. It starts with forestry materials and then becomes this very high value molecule that brings added strength to concrete and displaces some cement, uh, which has got a very high GHG footprint. So, you know, it's got a sort of double duty um, and they're partnering with a large company in our forestry sector and with manufacturers in the brick industry, all here in Nova Scotia. And when they came here, we built a pilot um, in our fume hood, and then we built a bigger pilot in Sidport, um, and now they're going to deploy a plant. So I think it's a really good example of the progress. How many people or how many companies have come through so far? Typically, we take you know five to 10 companies a year, so there's 33 companies in, in our portfolio right now. And the ones that came in first, like Alta Biota, are basically graduating, if you want to say, into deployment. So as, as they move, then more companies come through and we'll keep that five to 10 companies a year. And because we're taking, you know, fairly well de-risked companies, their success rate is that much higher than if you were early, early stage. Right. And I, I suppose it's still maybe a little bit early to say, but are they staying in Cape Breton? Are they going back to other places? We have always said that they will locate or co-locate where their primary ingredient is. Um, and so if it's forestry, for sure, they're staying in Nova Scotia. But there are some non-forestry biomass companies that are staying here also. Kraken uh, Sense is an example of that. They have a, a lab on a chip. So it's a diagnostic tool for um, pathogen detection in the food industry. And they've partnered with two other companies here in, in Nova Scotia, um, one here in, in Cape Breton. So, yeah, they, they are seeming to stay more than I would have suggested they would. I mean, I think uh, companies on our biomanufacturing side whose substrate is pea starch, it makes sense to co-locate in Saskatchewan or... Um, methanol would be Alberta, but, you know, certainly forestry-based and, and other innovations are staying here. That's fantastic. And is there something beyond the access to those resources that you think is keeping them? I do. Um, I Typically, you know, a company will build a platform. So it's not just a one product uh, entity. It's a, a technology platform. And our hope always was, and I think this is part of the stickiness as we call it, is that uh, they build their technical team here and when their technical team gets big enough, they want to stay and that same technical team will develop the second product and the third product and it makes sense for them to be where the resources are that we've built. So I think um, our theory always was the technical teams will stay. And those technical teams, are they mostly locals or are they coming from outside and then just liking it here? All across Canada. 
Yeah. Wow. That's great for Cape Breton on several fronts, you know, not only keeping these companies and these jobs here, but also, uh, you know, bringing in new residents. Our first 18 months, uh, the first 12 companies that came through hired 106 people and brought in 56 million of investment into their companies. So, I mean, those are numbers that, that in, in Cape Breton, it was very difficult to imagine achieving at one time. Natural resources have underpinned the Unamagi Cape Breton economy for hundreds of years. And they're still highly relevant, as you'll see in later episodes of this podcast series. But on top of that foundation is a rapidly evolving innovation ecosystem that Chad thinks will be transformative. I think the ecosystem in Cape Breton is really maturing at a very quick pace. I've seen more changes in the last five years than in the previous 15. And uh, I think it's momentum that is going to lead to substantial change that people don't expect. Having a rural-based medtech company in Mabu was, was odd when we started, but I, I don't think it's going to be anymore. There's going to be a lot of really innovative companies. I just, I think that the culture of Cape Breton is very innovative. And I think it's sort of, it's just part of who we are. It's also part of just a rural environment, right? It's a very resilient and, uh, and scrappy, resourceful ecosystem. Necessity is the motherhood of invention. So. In a resource-constrained environment, it does create a lot of innovative thinking. Cape Breton is a phenomenal place to do an innovation business from. And I think if you can uh, overcome those blind spots, there's really no, there's no excuses at all. Now, Darren, with his insights into bigger ecosystems, is a bit more reserved about whether tech businesses should move to Cape Breton, saying it depends on your company's unique needs. For example, regular air travel would mean driving a few hours to Halifax first. Remote businesses might work better, but they have their own challenges to consider, too. And then there's the matter of how much capital you need. I mean, there's more access to capital than there ever has been before. But there's also more access to capital in other parts of the world, right? But I could say, like, well, there's access to funding here that you won't get in most markets, that you won't get in Toronto. Or, you know, there's access to funding grants. There's certainly a lot of access, and you'll stand out as a small early stage company, which I think can be advantageous in the early stage. But at the growth stage, it's probably going to be harder, whether it's easier or slightly harder. And, you know, it's probably a combination of both. IT is quite flexible for location, but ag and biotech are more dependent on location and local resources. Beth thinks Unamagi Cape Breton has a strong value proposition for those sectors. Cape Breton's like a little Petri dish. We have all the required ingredients for success. So um, companies, for example, that want to look at carbon capture, companies that want to look at hydrogen production, offshore wind, wave energy, all of those things surround us and, and it has them all together. And if you're, you know, let's say, for example, hydrolysis from seawater versus regular water, we've got that right in the same location as wind. So I, I, I think we could do an even better job of positioning ourselves as the place to go for some of those energy innovations. More than just offering a great location, Beth says one of the island's strongest assets is the supportive ecosystem. I think the whole of Cape Breton in particular and Nova Scotia has incredibly innovative people. Um, we also have a generation right now of innovators that are, that are kind of exited universities across the country. And so what we provide here in Cape Breton is that supportive ecosystem. It's working with all the partners that are here to provide everything a company needs. You can't provide 
everything as one entity. So I think what's really important about what we do from Cape Breton is our connection with all our partners through Nova Scotia and nationally. We couldn't do all of that if we didn't have those relationships. And I think it's important when we talk about the Cape Breton ecosystem and innovation that we realize if we want to hit global targets, then we can't do those alone. And if we want to build big businesses, we can't do that alone. We need to be doing that collectively. So I think that shared innovation spirit is what we have in spades um, that one can't find anywhere else. Chad echoed that sentiment of a supportive ecosystem, without any prompting, I might add. Here's his advice for investors and entrepreneurs who are considering Cape Breton. I think uh, connecting with the Cape Breton Partnership is a great step. I think they're very dialed into the community that's here. Um, and there's a great supportive ecosystem for entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs that are in Cape Breton are very supportive, so they will um, be welcoming and, and help them set up shop. My advice is do it sooner than uh, later. Nova Scotia has been discovered during the pandemic, and there's been a lot of migration into the province and land prices are going up. So it's a good time to get in early and uh, move to, uh, to Mabu, that's what I would say. Now is a good time for biotech too. The Vashuran Center is expanding, building a 10,000 liter capacity biomanufacturing plant, which will be one of the biggest vessels for precision fermentation in Canada. For more information on Halifax Biomedical, Carbide, and the Vashuran Center, check out the websites linked in the show notes. To follow Chad's advice about connecting with the partnership, head over to capebretonpartnership.com. Or if you just want to dip a toe, browse the tools and resources at entrepreneurcb.com. Next time on the Invest in Cape Breton podcast, we're talking ports with the experts who can tell you about the assets available today in Sydney Harbour and the major developments that are coming down the pipeline that could be absolutely transformative. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you don't miss it. On the topic of podcasts, did you know that the partnership has another one called Welcome to Cape Breton? In every episode, host Norma Jean McBee-Zink talks to new residents of Unamagi, Cape Breton, and to the people dedicated to welcoming them. It's available on all the podcast platforms, too. Our theme music is Under My Skin by Glace Bay's own Elise Aaron. Invest in Cape Breton is produced by Storied Places Media, a proudly Cape Breton-owned business operated by me, Michelle Sampson. Thanks for listening.